0: Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Pat Stevens. Uh, Pat began his career as a product development engineer at Gore and then worked at several other medical device companies, including Boston Scientific and Medtronic. I think a few of us have heard of those companies and is currently VP of Research and Development at Shockwave Medical, where they leverage acoustic waves through a balloon catheter to Break Up Calcification in Arteries. Pat, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right. So uh, you have um, a a pretty lengthy career already, 25 years and going. um, And there are a lot of questions that I want to ask you about experiences you've had as an engineer. But before we get into that, I thought we'd start with something really simple. And that is, why did you decide to become an engineer?
1: You know, uh, I was just thinking about that in preparation for for our talk today. Um, So I'm uh, originally from Colorado, born and raised in Boulder, Colorado. And um, when I was in high school, I had pretty good aptitude for science and math and was thinking about engineering. And one of my good friends, uh, his name is Mike Kerrigan. His father was a federal judge in Colorado. And he had a dinner, and he said, "Hey, uh, Federico Pena, who was then the mayor of Denver, is going to be here. Do you have any interest in meeting him?" So I went over, and I spent about 15 minutes with uh, you know Mayor Pena at the time, and we talked a little bit about you know the future and what it looked like for me. And I told him I was considering engineering. And one of the, the things he said to me that really stuck with me is he said, "I think that's a great idea. Uh, I'm a lawyer, you know, by trade." But some of the best lawyers I've ever worked with and some of the, the best lawyers that I went to school with had engineering backgrounds and it really provoked the right thought process and sort of uh, good methodology and sound you know, critical thinking. So I think that was one of the, the final you know, straws that uh, got me to accept uh, that engineering was going to be my future.
0: Had that been something that you were considering before anyway? It was, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, as as I looked at, you know, all the different options, like I said, my my aptitude was pretty good in science and mathematics. Um, I had a lot of scientists in the family, so, you know, sort of looking into potentially a career in science was another option. But I always liked the idea of making something tangible and something that you could, you know, um, used to either improve somebody's lives or, you know, something that you could just hold in your hands and sort of, you know, felt more real to me. So that was part of the reason I chose engineering.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, it, it It's always felt to me like a degree in engineering, sure, you can become an engineer, but there's a lot else it prepares you for I, I think it, it helps develop that critical thought and problem solving skill set. Would you agree?
1: Uh, 100%. Yeah, no, I think there's no doubt about it. And certainly you know worked with and continue to work with people that have engineering degrees and backgrounds that are doing everything from sales to marketing, um, or they're executives and CEOs. But that engineering uh, background and and sort of foundation has really been instrumental in their success.
0: Okay, so you have worked at a lot of different places over the years, some of which have been large corporations, and others have been small startup companies. Uh, I was wondering if you could share what have been some of the key differences that you've experienced working at you know an established corporation versus a new startup uh, uh, environment?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are some, some key differences. I mean, one of the things that I've always looked for, uh, whether it's in a big company or a small company, is um, an environment where I feel like when I go in in the morning, uh, I make a difference. And if for whatever reason I'm ill that day and I can't make it into the office, that you know, my work content is missed and my contribution is missed. Um, I think for larger companies, sometimes you, your role might be smaller. Um, you're sort of a, a relatively small person in a relatively large pool, um, but that doesn't mean you can't make a big difference in a big contribution, and whether it's Medtronic or Boston Scientific, I believe that's true. Um, when you're at a startup environment, there is a certain sort of energy and um, almost a survival instinct that kicks in because you know, every day you know, you're burning a little bit of money, every day you're sort of, you know, how far can we go before we've got to take that next round of financing, or we've got to go out and, and basically go on the road and, and look for, for more money. And so that really does breed some you know, pretty creative solutions to problems. Uh, it, it gives everyone a, a really strong sense of urgency. And in that sense, it's, it's been kind of fun to do the, the startup world. Although um, both are fun, I've also found that my more recent experiences, both uh, at Shockwave Medical, where I am now, as well as Endologics, have been kind of a nice sweet spot because they're, they're relatively small and they still have that kind of entrepreneurial feel, um, but also large enough to have some commercial sales and a full cross-functional team uh, and in both cases, able to take the companies public. So that that was kind of um, a nice find for me personally uh, as I've gone on in my career.
0: Mm, that That's interesting. That makes me think of a, a Christmas gift that my in-laws got me several years back. It was a couple of tickets to uh, a raceway where I got to drive some exotic sports cars um one was a porsche one was a ferrari and one was a lamborghini and the porsche felt really safe and almost like i couldn't get into trouble with it the lamborghini just felt angry and like i was about to die every second and the, the Ferrari was this perfect mix between the two. It, it sounds like that's, that, uh, you know, shockwave endologic environment is, is kind of the Ferrari of, uh, of, of engineering companies for you.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's a good analogy. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's true.
0: Um, so more than half of your career has been spent in kind of the, the managerial side of engineering. Uh, uh, so my question, let me let me preface this by saying this question is, is not necessarily specific to you, but in general, do you, do you think that having a really strong engineering skill set is uh, a prerequisite to being a good engineering manager?
1: I'm not sure that it's, it's a requirement that I would say, but I think it certainly helps. And I think it also fosters some level of respect among your team that that you've gone through, you've been an individual contributor, you've done a lot of things that they're doing today. Um, So so I would say I would certainly um, you know, be an advocate for anyone who said, hey, I'm going to want to go into engineering management kind of longer term in my career to spend at least some portion of their career as an individual contributor to make sure they know exactly what's required to be a good individual contributor.
0: Okay, fair enough. A tangent to that question, have you seen um, uh, any evidence to support the, the hypothesis that a really good engineer will make a really good engineering manager?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, there are certainly, you know, some outstanding engineers um, which have difficulty mentoring and difficulty kind of working as engineering managers. And, And there's no doubt that nobody's gonna do it exactly like you do it. So if your expectation is that you're gonna sort of create clones along the way and they're gonna basically pick up and do exactly everything exactly the way you do it, that's just not gonna be the case. So you have to get comfortable that you can mentor you can guide you can direct people you can give them sort of the right set of requirements and the expectation that you've given them everything needed and empowered them to get their job done i think that's the key to being a good engineering manager and that is not necessarily ingrained in all engineers so
0: speaking of being a good engineering manager what can you share some strategies that that you have found useful and keeping your team focused on uh, key objectives, whatever it is they're supposed to be focusing on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's several different ways to do that, right? I mean, I think you want to make sure that their individual incentives are aligned with that. So, you know, at the beginning of the year, you want to make sure you set the goals and objectives up for your team so that they're incentivized to complete everything that you want to in the right order. So they have more incentive for things that are more important for the organization or more important for the research and development department. And they have less incentive for others. I think you do want to allow for a little bit of freedom and flexibility because otherwise I think that their job feels a little stagnant to them. So I think you you need to create that balance in order to keep some motivation as well. But I think the incentives are really the key.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that was another question that I wanted to ask is uh, that balance, I agree, it has to exist. How do you find where that balance is? How do you give your team enough freedom to pursue you know, uh, some creative ideas that who knows might turn into really important new innovations for the company, but not so much freedom that it distracts them from focusing on what Uh, the predetermined key objectives
1: are. Yeah, I think you just want to stay in good tune with the team. I think you want to be in constant contact with people. You know, I spend probably some portion of every week making through or walk through all the engineering laboratories, talking to all the technicians, talking to all of the the people that are not necessarily my direct reports, but people that are in R&D and trying to get their perspective. And I think you can sense when the energy level is a little bit low, when people have been working really hard, but it's been kind of a grind. And then you can identify what are some things we can do? What are some incentives that we can have them look forward to that will be very motivational for them in the future? Whether that's potentially, you know, some uh, incentives on patents, try to get some additional disclosures, creating some ideation sessions that might be motivational for them, Sometimes uh, it could involve bringing physicians in and talking about sort of how their work and how the products that they've ultimately developed are impacting patients' lives and, and helping people. So I think, you know, try to keep some combination of all those things.
0: Yeah, and, and you don't get that without having one-on-one conversations with your team, do you?
1: No, I think that's critical. I mean, I think, you know, you don't wanna basically be the kind of engineering manager that sits in the office. so. If you're not spending you know a fair bit of your time out talking to people in the lab looking at things um, looking at data sort of um, encouraging people but also offering up solutions i think we're all uh, problem solvers at heart you know all of us that have studied engineering so i think people really appreciate that you know you're willing to take the time to sit down and kind of work you know arm in arm with them or elbow to elbow with them and try to solve problems
0: yeah i'm curious do you do you actually schedule time during which you're going to be roaming around the R and D lab having direct conversations with people or is it a little bit more fluid kind of just whenever you have time or whenever you feel like it's appropriate i think it
1: depends you know so you know on a given week you know if i sit down on monday morning and i look at my schedule and i and i want to make sure that um, i do spend some time doing that if my calendar looks like it's pretty full for the week I'll definitely do a couple of different things. I'll schedule some time just to do work. So whether that's reviewing information, reviewing documents, getting some planning together, uh, making sure that I have time to just sit down and think and do some of that work. But also you can schedule some time to you know walk through the lab, to talk to people. And then there are weeks in which I'll say, you know, this is an important week. I don't think I've had spent enough time with certain key individuals, whether they're the individual contributors or my direct reports. So then I'll go off and I'll schedule some more formal one-on-ones for half an hour or an hour, depending on what the, the content of the topics that we're going to talk about are. I,
0: I love hearing that you schedule blocks of time to do these things in your calendar. I, I do the same thing. Um, do you sometimes i feel like there's so much going on that all i'm doing is reacting and and i haven't given myself any dedicated intentional time to just take a step back and think high level do you ever schedule in time to your schedule to to you know to not react to just take a step back uh not not really relax but uh to give yourself time to reflect and just, you know, think high level, think creatively about what is it I'm actually trying to accomplish here? How, how can I do that?
1: No, absolutely. You know, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there, which is there are times when, you know, things are very busy. Maybe you've got some deadlines that are coming up. Maybe there's a few different um, projects or we're coming up on, you know, potentially a, a show where we want to basically go out and, and highlight some of the, the technology or some of the products that we're working on and you can feel like you're just reacting and you're not being proactive in any way. And so that is an important time and it's an important acknowledgement that you say, okay, I need to take a step back. I probably need to critically look at my schedule and maybe identify some things that I would do on on the average week that I can't do this week just so I can have some time to myself, some time to think, some time to think strategically, some time to think creatively and some time to just make sure that I'm being proactive and not just reactive.
0: Um, Okay, so you've been involved in R&D in a long time. In fact, a lot of your role titles have had R&D in them. Um, uh, Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I had a tool that did this? That doesn't exist. So let me rephrase that to be a little bit more clear. Is is there has there ever been a tool or a piece of equipment that you've always wanted for your R&D lab, but that just doesn't exist?
1: You know, it's interesting you say that. Um, I, I think I, I, I'm sure there is, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure there have been times that we're, we're looking for equipment and you know i think you know last week you know you you talked to dan kasperzak and some of the equipment that the msi team has come up with and i remember years ago when we were at gore trying to load you know stent grafts was a huge challenge and i don't know if you know the history of the original you know it was called hemabond before it was viabond so it was one of their first covered stents but it was essentially in order to get that thing loaded onto a catheter what they did is they would they would chill it so that the nitinol um, would go into Martin'site, then they could smash it flat and roll it like a jelly roll, and, and that that had you know some advantages, and it was kind of a creative solution you could imagine because there was no iris crimper at the time to to go and load it, but you certainly could see that that at the time was was a need and. Um, MSI as a company has been highly successful because it was a need. It wasn't just a need for for us when we were at Gore or at Boston Scientific or Medtronic or others. But it's a need for anyone who wants to develop either self-expanding or balloon-expandable stents or stent grafts. So I think you know that would be an example. But but it's interesting. You know, hindsight's always twenty-twenty. You look back in retrospect, and you say that 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 iris is such a great idea, and it's relatively simple conceptually. It's difficult, you know, in practice to make something like that, but relatively simple conceptually. But, you know, it's one of those things about, you know, how did we do it beforehand? You know, now we just count on something like that.
0: What has been one of the most exciting or interesting projects that you have worked on to date as an engineer? Can can you share a little bit about what made it exciting? What made it interesting?
1: You know, I think... I... I think in retrospect, looking back at those early days at Gore, where, you know, no one really had uh, created a good stent graft at the time, that was pretty exciting because it was, uh, Gore at the time was really a surgical products company. Uh, It didn't really have the, the, the know how to create some of the interventional products for which they're known for today. And it was really trying to go out and reinvent and recreate the company. And and that was a pretty exciting time to to be involved in that particular product. I think, you know, the other really exciting and innovative time for me was uh, early in my TriVascular experience. So, you know, when I showed up at TriVascular, there were only six other people in the company. I was number seven. And we were kind of in this little garage uh, in Santa Rosa, Northern California and trying to create not just a stent graft, but a stent graft that was going to use an injectable polymer. So this was going to be the first time that anyone had really used an injectable polymer into a stent graft too. And so that was daunting, but also pretty invigorating that we were going to, you know, take the bull by the horns and actually do something that nobody had ever done. And so I think when I look back on my career, when we start to do things that no one's ever done before, that's pretty motivational. And although I'm not a founder or inventor on the shockwave technology, that was one of the things that really intrigued me about the company that, you know, here we are solving a problem that's been longstanding. There's been this long felt need, you know, nothing's really done a good job treating these calcified lesions. Um, For as long as we've been treating, you know, coronary arteries or, you know, below the knee or any of the places that has significant calcification, and you know, coming through with this balloon technology, using kind of shockwave um, acoustic technology to really crack and modify that calcium, I think it's it's ingenious. I'm
0: glad you brought up shockwave. I wanted to talk about uh, the company just for a little bit here. Um, I think that, especially for maybe younger engineers, or, or certainly for individuals not really associated with the whole product development space. Um, It's really hard to appreciate how much work and effort goes into developing even a simple device, much less, you know, something more complex like like this, uh, the catheter that you've all developed there. Can you share a little bit, uh, uh, what level of effort, how long does it take to, to develop something like that?
1: Well, you know, we just look back and, you know, I'm lucky that I'm still in contact with, you know, some of the founders from Shockwave, so... Um, John Adams, for the most part, who's kind of one of the primary inventors, um, inventors. But you know, John and uh, Daniel Hawkins, one of the other co-founders, uh, basically were taking this technology and looking at it in the the 2005 timeframe, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. And so, if you think you know, that's that's 15-ish years now. I think there were some you know. Financial constraints along the way in 2008 when it was difficult for them to get funding and they had um, You know no not availability of the kind of capital that they needed But um, it wasn't really until they they involved Todd Brinton who was a cardiologist at Stanford and then went ahead and really you know took the, the Technology from the Seattle area where it was originally developed brought it down to Northern California that they were able to get traction so you know you're talking about about a 10 or 15 year run from conception to when we really had products on the market. And while that's probably on the long side, I think it would be relatively commonplace for especially an implant to take five or seven years to design and develop.
0: Ah, That's incredible, that's so much time. For For Shockwave specifically, what do you think was the turning point? You mentioned that they started to get some traction after Uh, meeting one of the physicians that they worked with. Was it it just getting to know the right people or was there some turning point in advancing the technology or some combination of the two or something else altogether?
1: Yeah, I I think it was a combination of factors. I I think by bringing the team to Northern California, um, they were able to uh, get some people with significant catheter design and development experience. So I think a lot of the electronics, um, while they've changed and they've been refined, I think that sort of the basic understanding of how the electronics were gonna work and the generator as a box itself, were not that different from what the, the team in Seattle was doing. But I think the catheter expertise in the Bay Area really helped you know, expedite that. But the other interesting thing about the whole journey was there was a lot of skepticism among physicians that this was really gonna work, right? I mean, it sort of seemed funny because on the one hand, you can hold the, the shockwave catheter in your hand and you can actuate it and while you can feel the shockwaves, they, they pass through the soft tissue pretty easily right So the impedance between kind of the, the saline in the balloon and the soft tissue in your hand doesn't really cause a, um, a lot of attenuation of the signal so you don't absorb a lot of the energy where. Calcium does, and so I think it took a while to explain that. And and then once physicians said, okay, yeah, I, I believe it's going to modify the calcium. I think there was then concern: well, are there going to be un- other unintended consequences of the technology? For example, are we going to get embolization whereby particles go downstream and we have other problems associated with this? And so. I think it took a while to get some real key advocates to to try the technology, to do some of the early clinical studies, um, in order to get traction with the with the design of the device itself.
0: If you're holding that that balloon in your hand and and you push the go button, do you do you feel it in your hand? Is it uh, enough to feel it? it? It is, yeah. I
1: mean, you can you can feel it pulsing, right? So the the way that it works is you know, the shock waves go through obviously very quickly, right? So they're moving, you know, just slightly faster than the speed of sound. So if you feel it in your hand, you'll feel sort of like this buzzing. And essentially what happens is it's, it's, uh, it's pulsing once a second. So it's rep rates, one Hertz, the shock wave itself happens, um, kind of, you know, in a few microseconds. So within a few microseconds, it's passing through your, your hand and, and out sort of dispersing radially outward into the soft tissue. So, Yes, you can feel it, but I think it's hard for physicians to to really understand that that's going to modify calcium. And one of the favorite things that I was able to observe early on is I went to the the TCT meeting, so the Transcatheter Therapies meeting, and it, it was in San Diego in 2018. And we had some cardiologists come up, and they were they were looking at the device, and they sort of said, "Well, you know, what is this thing?" So you, you handed it to them, and the first thing they said was, "You know, actuated in their hand." and We asked them outright, we said, do you think that will do anything to calcium? And both of them said, no, I don't think so. And then we had, you know, created this little gypsum model. We thought this might be kind of an effective way to show folks. So we basically took the gypsum, put it around the balloon, put it into a little saline bath and actuated. You could actually see the gypsum crack right away. So they were absolutely fascinated with this. And and by the end of the meeting, I remember there was two, three, four deep, just wanting to see this, this, Sort of uh, way that you could you could show and you could uh, see intangibly understand how the shockwave technology was working and modifying the calcium.
0: What a great demo! Um, does the does the shockwave technology does it work as effectively for every patient with calcium buildup, or is it is does the patient need to fit kind of a specific uh, like physiological profile to be eligible for the procedure?
1: I think it, it has some effect on virtually all calcium and as I've learned over the last couple of years, you know, not all calcium is created equally. So some calcium is circumferential. So you can imagine it's like a ring all the way around the artery. In some cases it's eccentrically located on one side of the artery or the other. And then there's a sort of a form of calcium called nodular calcium, which tends to be a little bit different in its orientation and strength. And so our, our technology seems to work the best on concentric calcium. Um, it seems to work on eccentric calcium, but it takes a little bit more pulses in order to, to break up the eccentric calcium. And nodular calcium is the most difficult for it. So as, as we look to continue to, to iterate our technology and then ultimately come up with next generation catheter designs. These are the areas that we're focused in terms of how do we get better with eccentric? How do we get better with nodular calcium? How do we uh, do uh, and treat uh, calcified lesions in places that right now don't have any uh, methodology for? One of the areas that we're focused on, for example, is the aortic valve. There's a significant amount of calcium on the leaflets in the aortic valve that, um, that we have the potential to, to treat and um, either augment the valve replacement therapy as it is today, or if we're highly successful treating the calcium, you can imagine that you could uh, reduce the pressure gradient or the pressure drop across the valve such that it it would allow for a patient to go on several years before needing a replacement valve.
0: Very interesting. Okay, I want to take a, a step back now, kind of remove ourselves from any specific company and ask a general question. Um uh, and this is really general so I hope you don't have too much mo- too hard of a time answering it. It does not need to be specific to any particular technology. It could just be, you know, dealing with stress or focus or 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 whatever, but the question is what what are a couple of the biggest challenges that that you face as an engineer and as a manager each day? Like when you go into work, what are some of the things that, you know, you're worried about?
1: Yeah, I mean I I think you know i i worry a lot about as in my current you know job i worry a lot about motivation and retention of my key staff i worry a lot about making sure that i'm recruiting and you know getting interest from the best talent that i can possibly get um have you know, sort of come to the conclusion that if if i'm the smartest person in the room i haven't done my job uh, I should make sure that if if I'm successful, that virtually everybody that I recruit is as smart, or hopefully even smarter than me, and and then that's that's sort of the the biggest challenge as an engineering manager to make sure that that's right. I think as an individual contributor, thinking back on some of those problems, I certainly remember whereby you know there was discovery that was needed. You know, we we you know wanted to to solve a technical problem, and it wasn't clear how to do it, and just instead of you know concerning yourself with the details and trying to jump to the conclusion really just taking a step back and 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 counting on the sound fundamentals that you gain both in school and through life and life experiences and engineering experiences to do some problem solving whether it's you know trying to use the six sigma tools or whether it's basically just some good design experiments or whether it's you know kind of just taking a methodical approach to the problem and not letting it overwhelm you—that it's going to be difficult to jump to this, you know, difficult technical solution.
0: That's a great answer, and it makes me think of another question I, I want to ask you: What are some of the skills that your best engineers have?
1: Well, I mean, I think that all—all all of them have, I think, good engineering aptitude and good skills. And and I think if I were to look at, you know, what are the what are the what are the traits and attributes of of the engineers that do the best. I think tenacity is one of them. I think, you know, just sticking to it. Engineering is one of those things where it's a marathon. It's not a sprint most of the time. You know, you're trying to to chip away at problems to, to get to a solution. I think, you know, good, strong technical att- you know, acumen is a really important and key uh, part of being a good, strong engineer. Uh, I think teamwork. You know, if I were to talk to young engineers, I think it's easy for them to you know, lose sight of, you know, I was, I've was i been working as an individual a lot of the time. I've been, you know, focusing on making sure I pass the test. But I think, you know, you win and lose in business as a team. It's a team sport. So I think making sure that you've got good, appropriate team and communication skills within the team. Uh, So those are the kind of attributes that I look for. So it's important, I think, for me when I look to build a team to make sure that the individual people that are going to be involved in that team are a good fit for one another. That you've kind of identified what is the culture that I'm trying to build. And as I bring people into the team that they're going to build on that culture.
0: Hmm. I love that answer. What, What are some things that you've done to determine whether a person fits the culture you're trying to build or not?
1: You know, I, I think you can get a sense for it in an interview. Um, I think you can get a sense for it when you, um, you do the reference checks and you talk to their, their former colleagues or their, their former, um, you know, folks. I think it's really important when you're going through and trying to identify, this is a person I'm going to add to the team, that you get a broad cross-section of the organization to at least speak with that person before um, giving them a final offer. And then when you, you you wrap up and you have a conversation about all of the different interviews and all the different topics that people talk about, you really take the time to listen to everybody in that room and really assess what you think that person's going to be a good fit or not.
0: There's a <clears throat> there's a software company called Menlo Innovations. I think I may have even mentioned them on the podcast before. The uh, CEO wrote this book that was so interesting, uh, Joy Inc. It was called. But he talks about uh, evaluating new potential new employees and one of the things that they do which i thought was so fascinating is he uh he has them come in for a day and work a full day paid with one of their existing employees and the objective and they tell the the candidate this the objective for you today is not so much to demonstrate your technical aptitude it's to make your partner look good uh, they call it the, their kindergarten skills. You know, show us your kindergarten skills. Make your partner look good. And I thought, what a wonderful way to evaluate potential new team members. Because uh, chances are most of the people you interview are going to have good technical skills or else they wouldn't be applying for the job anyway. But I find that it's a smaller percentage of those people who are really good communicators, who know how to be a team player, are pleasant to work with, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Anyway, I just thought that was really interesting no thats that's a great
1: story I've, I've not heard that before, but that's a that's a really interesting idea
0: yeah yeah okay um would you share with us uh, either either a, a major success or a major fail that you've had in your career, and what lessons you learned from that?
1: One of the biggest lessons I learned and it, it was sort of um, a lesson around where I wanted to take my career and sort of how I wanted that to work is I, I spent a couple of years in biotech and I went to work for this sort of mid relatively well relatively small company in Santa Barbara California and we were working on basically photodynamic therapy so you essentially activated these drugs with light different wavelengths of light would activate the drug and then conceptually this is a great idea. But I think when you look at all of the steps to go ahead and get that approved, and this particular thing sort of had a device component, had a drug component, this is before the combination devices were commonplace within regulatory bodies like FDA. I think it became clear to me that, you know, that was a bigger project than someone that has a mechanical engineering background like myself is able to take on and really you know drive to fruition so I I, I think when I took a step back I think it was identifying what are the key important things that I can contribute where is it that I need significant help and I think that is that's a key Uh, and that's been with me ever since and whether it was At Trivascular, where I had to have people report into me that were polymer chemists, and I know very little about polymer chemistry, but I can identify probably the things that I want, the attributes that I need out of the polymer itself, and identify people that have strong skill sets in that. Or the electrical engineering team, electrical and software slash firmware team at Shockwave Medical, very talented team, and an area that uh, I am um, not particularly savvy in. So certainly something that I count on their technical acumen for.
0: Yeah, I I know what you mean there. I I am terrible with uh, electronics. I took a double E class, of course, in college, and it was probably the worst class I took. So I I can't do any. I'm not Sparky, as uh, some of my colleagues say. I'm not Sparky. <laughs> Luckily, they are. Um, okay, great. Well, let's see. Uh, just just one more question for you. If if you weren't I'm sorry, I lied. I have two more questions for you. (laughs) The first one, if you weren't an engineer, what do you think you would be and why?
1: That's a difficult question because I love engineering and and probably at this point in my life, it would be difficult for me imagining doing anything else. I, I think I probably would have fallen back and I probably would have been a scientist. I mean, I think given that that was relatively commonplace within my family, given that a lot of the people that I looked up to and respected um, were were scientists. My grandfather worked at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He was an atmospheric physicist. I, you know, I, I think I probably would have done something like that, and and felt like that would be a good way um, for for me to go.
0: Interesting. Okay, so it's fair to say your family had a significant influence on kind of guiding your your technical path, anyway.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's it's a little bit about interest uh, and and. Like all families, it's setting values, and you know. I think as a family, you know, people sort of value, valued um, scientific thought process over you know business. We we didn't have any entrepreneurs in the family. Um, I think that that's that's been an acquired taste and interest in me, and it's something I'm certainly very interested in now. Is you know business and entrepreneurial activities, but certainly had no exposure to it as a young person.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Um... Last question. Are there any tools that you can share that you've really loved using that have been uh, very beneficial and, and influential in kind of molding your career and, and developing yourself as uh, as an engineer? And I'll use the term tool fairly loosely. I mean, it could be a physical tool or it could be something softer like um, you know, uh, personally, I I find uh, immense value in reading a lot of books that, that generate new ideas and things like that. So that could be considered a tool. But uh, in your own life, what, what kind of tools have you found that have been very useful for you?
1: I, I think there there is a certain amount whereby I've spent a little bit of time trying to go out and, and read about product development, read about best practices in terms of engineering. Uh, spend some time trying to keep up my skill set. So I, I think the, the idea of you know trying to stay current would be one, one of those tools. But, but I think the other thing that I've probably spent more time on, certainly as I've gone into engineering management, is working on some of the soft skills. And certainly a work in progress and probably always will be for me, but really trying to identify ways by which I can make other people better and I think while that sounds like a, a good idea conceptually, I think it's a difficult thing in practice to really identify and try to figure out what is it that I can do to make my team the best I can possibly be? What is it that I can make, whether it's a catheter designer or one of my, my Sparkies or one of my uh, you know computer programmers, better at what they do?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a huge point, um, something I think all of us probably – work on like you said it, it's uh, always changing always evolving it's never finished right it's a work in progress
1: yeah couldn't agree more
0: well pat thank you so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your your wisdom and your insights um i really appreciate you taking the time out and just uh, speaking with me and and sharing you know some of your history and background so thank you very much
1: oh uh, you're very welcome aaron it was my pleasure
0: I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.